episode 48 of Tall Poppy. I'm your host, Tathra Street, leadership futurist, coming to you from Hawaii at the moment. This is part of our series on women and power. Today, my guest is Exeter University professor Michelle Ryan. She's a social and organizational psychologist researching gender inequality. I had the pleasure of meeting Michelle Ryan at the Future of Work conference put on by the Center for Workplace Leadership at the end of 2017. In this interview from mid-2018, we dove into the hefty topics of gender equality, the impact of stereotypes on women in leadership, and why the word feminism is vilified. We explored the internal and external factors that impact gender inequality in our society, broader notions of gender and gender roles. She weaves her own experience as well as backs up her criticism of the whole lean-in catch cry with substantial research. I hope you enjoy this rich conversation with Michelle Ryan. I'd like to welcome Michelle Ryan to Tall Poppy. Welcome, Michelle. Oh, it's great to be here, Tathra. Thanks. So let's start with where in the world are you? So I'm in my office at the University of Exeter, uh, which is in the southwest of the UK. Excellent. And let's just acknowledge that you are from Australia, but you haven't been here for a really long time. You've been over there for about 15 years. Is that, about, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I did all of my sort of undergraduate and PhD work in Australia, but moved to the UK not long after that. Excellent. So let's start with a little bit about your work. So I first met you at the Future of Work conference in Melbourne a few months ago. You were talking about dispelling some of the myths around women and leadership. So can you tell me from your perspective what your work's about and why it's important to you? Yeah, I'm a social and organizational psychologist, and my work really does focus on sort of workplace inequality. And I tend to focus on sort of gender inequality in the workplace more generally. I mean, for me, it's important for a number of reasons. I think it is a big social issue. Uh, Gender workplace inequality really is persistent. It hasn't changed that much really in the last, say, 10 to 15 years. I mean, historically, we've seen a lot of change, but I think much more recently, even though there's a lot more attention paid to diversity in the workplace, inclusion in the workplace, gender equality, actually, we're not really making very many gains. And for me, this kind of persistence is a really important uh, social issue that we need to address. But I think also for me, it really is something that I experience on a day-to-day basis. It's something that's really personally relevant as well. So for me, doing research in this area is something I think that's both sort of important as a social issue, but important to me personally. Mm. Yeah, I hear you. And what really stood out for me when I heard about your work uh, when you were here in Melbourne, along the lines of kind of challenging some of the preconceived notions about women and leadership and kind of getting underneath those stereotypes of why women aren't in these leadership roles. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've discovered in the work that you've done in in the research? Yeah, absolutely. In our work, because I'm a psychologist and as psychologists, we really try and understand I guess, underlying processes, why things happen. I think it is important that we, I guess, as researchers more generally understand what is happening. So that might be the size of the gender gap or the number of women in leadership positions and those sorts of things, sort of describing inequality. But for me as a social and organizational psychologist, I'm really interested in understanding what causes it. And really, as I said before, what causes it to be so persistent and and to be really difficult to break down. 
So for us, it's not just about saying, you know, why are there so few women in leadership positions, but saying, well, why aren't there women in leadership positions? What are the processes there? But also getting into the real nuances there to say, when women do take on leadership positions, because we certainly know that there are women breaking through the glass ceiling, you know, they are women taking over on these leadership positions to really understand, for example, the types of leadership positions that they take on. So, for example, one of the, the bits of research that we've done is to look at what we call the glass cliff. And this is the idea that women tend to take on leadership positions in times of crisis, when things are difficult, when things are hard, and when these leadership positions are kind of risky and precarious. So we're really interested in understanding why that might be the case. There are some really interesting examples of that. Do you want to just name a couple that stand out? I mean, especially given where in the world you are and, you know, what's happening politically in that part of the world. What are you noticing there as far as examples of that that cliff you mentioned? Yeah. So, I mean, our research goes and gives lots of examples of where this happens. And, and we can look in the lab, we can look in FTSE 100 companies. So that's the top 100 companies on the London Stock Exchange. But I think certainly anecdotally, there's lots of examples as well. And I think pro- perhaps my favourite, if, if one can call it a favourite example at the moment, is certainly Theresa May and Brexit. So, I mean, whatever your political affiliations, whatever you think of whether or not the UK should remain or leave um, the European Union, one can say that it, it is a very difficult time to be Prime Minister of the in the UK at the moment. Views on this are very split. It's a very difficult time in terms of negotiating. It's a difficult time in terms of getting this legislation through. And what I find interesting is immediately after the referendum, we had Cameron step down. We had a number of people who would be perhaps natural successors within the Conservative Party run in the opposite direction. So we had Boris Johnson, we had Gove, we had a number of, I guess, quite senior male leaders uh, really stepping away from leadership roles. And then we see Theresa May, who I think has, of course, been a a senior figure within the Conservative Party for a a number of years and has clearly been looking for leadership roles, suddenly coming and taking the helm. Now, I don't think that's a coincidence. I really do think it's the case that this was or is, remains, an incredibly difficult leadership position to occupy. And it's no coincidence that it's a woman who's occupying it at the moment. Were you... um aware of what was going on in terms of Julia Gillard's leadership when she was Prime Minister of Australia? Would you factor that into to this as a perhaps a similar example or, or perhaps the way she was treated? I think there's a lot going on there, absolutely. Um, and I think Julia Gillard, you know, as the first Australian Prime Minister, is definitely another example of someone who's come in sort of during quite difficult times, sort of in terms of leadership challenges and views of the Labour Party as well. I do think What is also interesting with um, Julia Gillard's tenure as PM is really just the amount of, of, you know, really overt sexism and misogyny that she faced, sort of over and above the precariousness of the position that she may have been in. I think that really is epitomised by her, I think, very sort of famous and rousing misogyny speech that she gave in Parliament. Mm. Yeah, um, I'll uh, add a link to that in the show notes for anyone who hasn't seen it. And even right down to, you know, her getting a new pair of glasses and it being sort of the subject of debate. It was just like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm Surely there are more important things to talk about. 
Absolutely. And I think we see this every day with female leaders, don't we? That sometimes they spend more time talking about what they're wearing, you know, or indeed, you know, if, if we think of Jacinda in New Zealand, you know, whether what's in their womb than actually what they're about and and I think you know we do this with Hillary Clinton as well. She was in a position where she was just being evaluated left, right, and centre, and being held to a much higher standard. I think you know during the presidential campaign than any of her competitors. And indeed, I mean, she's not even president, and she seems to be being held to a higher standard than the actual president. So I think this is really interesting, and, and, and it really comes down to a lot of the research that's been done in social psychology is that women are evaluated differently than their male counterparts. They're held to different standards, and they're often in a position where they can't win. So there's do damned if they don't. So, for example, uh, Hillary Clinton is criticised when she talks about women's issues, for example, when she shows compassion and warmth. She's often sort of been been told that she's not tough enough. But then when she behaves in a a tough manner, she's criticised for not being warm enough for being hard-nosed and those sorts of things as well. So women leaders often walk this tightrope between what they're supposed to do as women and what they're supposed to do as leaders. And because those two stereotypes of what we expect from leaders and what we expect from women are really at odds with each other, they're often in a position where they can't win. There's some sort of double bind for them there. And I'm thinking about the message that that sends to young women who may be, you know, aspirationally considering the possibility of some kind of leadership role, whether it's in their community, within a business, or even in the family, and just seeing how women are treated. It's such a... I mean, the word that comes to mind is a turnoff. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes me think of the... The idea of the the opt out revolution and the term that was um, was it coined as part of that that uh, New Yorker article or was it named by someone else? Yeah, it was the New, it was a New York Times magazine article um, about it's about fifteen years ago now, so two thousand and three, I believe it came out, and it was really looking at at women's aspirations and ambition in leadership. And and what I find really interesting about this sort of analysis is that it's sort of moving the explanation for continued gender inequality away from structural barriers like the glass ceiling or the glass cliff or, you know, the division of labour or the gender pay gap. It really starts to look at this idea of women's choices, for example. So what are women choosing to do? What are they? Are their ambitions? Where do they want to be? And this article in the New York Times, um, in, in the magazine of the New York Times, started interviewing a series of women um, about why they had decided to leave, I think, highly successful uh, jobs in very good companies. These were often highly educated women that had been to Ivy League universities in the US. And they had made this... Uh, I guess, a concerted choice to step back from their careers, often so that they had a better work-life balance in terms of raising their children and spending time with their families. Um, So they coined the phrase the opt-out revolution of of women really choosing to not want, you know, to, to aim perhaps as high as their male counterparts. Now, for me, what I find really interesting is is that that analysis that women are sort of choosing to not want to be successful, 
I, I, I think sort of misses some of the points and, and, and our research certainly suggests that women's ambitions and, and women's aspirations are not just shaped by, I guess, an innate desire to have a better work-life balance or a, a different uh, definition of success or a different sort of set of motivations, but really it's very much related to, to as we were talking about before, having uh, role models, believing that they can succeed being treated with respect in the workplace. And, and I think what's really interesting is that my analysis is that women absolutely are opting out, but it's not, not because of a simple reason of wanting to spend more time with their children, or, or, although, of course, that is a perfectly important and acceptable reason, you know, to, to want a good work-life balance, but that's not the only motivator that's going there. And there really is a lot of work that shows that, Women sense that they don't belong, that they don't fit in, that they won't succeed, and that their success isn't rewarded properly. All of these things really contribute to the opt-out revolution. It makes me think of the cost of being in those leadership positions. It's not just about you know time and and I get the impression that there's a lot of other factors involved. And I, I really like what you talk about as far as the the sense of belonging and the the identity element of it. Are there, are there other things that you think that are really important for us to, to be mindful of when we're looking at, at all the different factors that contribute to it? Yeah, I mean, I think it really is about the experience about being a woman in leadership positions or aspiring to leadership positions and the sort of toll that that takes on one. I think there's a really, I'm, I'm really not sure who, who had this quote, but there was this idea that, you know, that women have to do everything the same as men, but, but work twice as hard to do it. The idea that Ginger Rogers did everything that Fred Astaire did, but backwards and heel. You know, right? So, so it's this idea that it, that things are a bit more difficult, and that really is the sort of underlying idea behind the glass cliff: is that we shouldn't just be looking at the number of women in leadership positions, sort of the quantity of women in these positions, but we've got to look at the quality of these positions mm-hmm. and the experience of women in these leadership positions as well. So, if one is always pushing, you know, work uphill, that I think that mm-hmm. becomes exhausting and tiring. Yeah. Not not just for the women that are doing it, but also for the women, other women watching them do it. And, and partly, if you see women struggling in these glass cliff positions, I mean, we look at Theresa May now, and I don't think anyone wants to be in her position. I can't imagine a generation of, of young women aspiring to be prime minister because they see Theresa May, for example. I think it's an awful position to be in. Yeah. So, so I think what it what it does is it's not providing people with the inspiring female role models that they need, um, and and if anything, it, it potentially perpetuates our stereotypes of women not being particularly good at leadership. If you look up and see someone like Theresa May struggling on a day to day basis, we it, it might you know if if nothing else, subtly reinforce the idea that women aren't very good at leadership. And I often think about the both the internal and the external barriers. I mean, there's the structural stuff that that is, you know, part of the fabric of our society. But there's also, you know, that that interplay between how that exists externally, but also contributes to whether it's you know issues around self esteem or confidence or just self belief. So often. A lot of the rhetoric seems to really put the onus on women, like even just the lean in concept. And I really like how you and your work is very much about 
kind of smashing that out of the park and that it's not just about women doing more and, and leaning in and, and speaking up. There's, a, like I said, a wide variety of things at play. So h- how do you see that kind of interplay between the internal and external barriers? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the lean-in the lean-in phenomenon has been hugely successful. So, Sheryl Sandberg, COO of Facebook, um, her inspiring TED Talk and sort of follow-up book and website is all about this sort of empowering women to make the right choices in their careers, you know, that, that they should lean in, they should take a seat at the table, they should get on the rocket ship. And, and actually, if you read that book and if you look at the memes and if you look at the website, um, it, it is incredibly empowering in, in many ways because it is talking about women making the right choices so one can be successful. But I guess what's really interesting there is that there's not much of an analysis about why women make the choices that they do. Mm-hmm. Why do they not lean in? Why are they not confident? You know, why do they not negotiate hard? And I think what's really missing is an understanding of those barriers that are there. And we've got a project at the moment where we're really looking at how context and culture and experiences really kind of shape and constrain women's choices. Because just Mm. telling a woman to begin is not particularly useful if you don't understand why she isn't leaning in in the first place. Now, unless you just assume that women fundamentally are not competent enough, and then just telling them to be more confident will make them so, it seems like it's missing something. And our research certainly shows that women's confidence, and uh, there's a lot of talk about imposter syndrome at the moment, this idea that, that women feel um, imposters even when they are successful, that they don't feel that they legitimately deserve their success or the power that they might have. And I guess what really interests me about that term imposter syndrome is, is really the word syndrome, right, is, is that it's some kind of medical condition that happens internally that women just don't have this confidence or, or the, um, you know, the ability to, to just embrace their success. Um, but for me, the reason that women feel like imposters is because often they're treated as imposters. Mm. They're often their, their positions and their success are belittled or ignored, or not granted to them. And these can be really, really small little things. Uh, So I'll just give you an example. I'm a professor of social and organisational psychology, and I perhaps don't look like your typical professor of social and organisational psychology, whatever that looks like, a stereotype (laughs) of one. I guess I I might be younger, I'm certainly more female, I'm very Australian, I'm sort of short, I'm pretty casual, I'm, I'm not very formal in those ways. But many times I'll, I'll introduce myself or I'll be in a situation where I'm there in a professional capacity and people will say, oh, you don't look like a professor or, or they'll talk to a person that I'm with assuming, and this might be a postdoc of mine or a, a junior colleague of mine, assuming that they're the professor and those sorts of things. Now, these are often just very small little things that undermine my feeling that actually I'm a professor and maybe I I um, earned that that role. And I think this happens to women. I mean, that's, this is just an example for me, but I think this happens to women all the time. Absolutely. So we're doing some work at the moment to look at 
at the small, I guess, ways in which which women can be treated that can undermine their feelings of belonging, their feeling of legitimate status, their feeling of power, and might actually contribute to uh, feelings of being an imposter or a lack of confidence. And these mm. are things like being talked over, being interrupted, having your ideas dismissed, or, you know, even worse, having your ideas dismissed, having that same idea echoed by a male colleague <laughs> and someone going, that's a good idea. And I think every woman in the audience has, mm-hmm. has definitely been in that position. Yeah. I think it's the mansplaining that happens where we assume that women need help when perhaps they don't, when they need things explained to them, when perhaps they're experts. I think all of these things contribute to imposter syndrome, to confidence, to women not leaning in. And I think unless we understand and change those things, instead of trying to just change women's confidence, I think this is part of the reason why we're not moving things forward, because we're trying to fix women rather than fix the structures that are constraining women. The term micro exclusions comes to mind as a way to describe a lot of, you know, how it kind of keeps women out of the you know halls of power or just the a sense of yeah inclusion in power in society so i'm curious about what your thoughts around how this translates to women in power in society and the roles that women play the achievements in terms of like you were mentioned before that that get recognized or not how do you think that plays out in in our cultural contexts in for lack of a better term the western world yeah, I mean, I think it plays itself out in a, in a number of ways. I mean, one of those is the gender pay gap. So we know that the gender pay gap tends to be, you know, pretty consistent across organisations, across cultures and across time, actually. It's, it tends to sit somewhere between 15 and 20%. Um, it moves around a little bit. Now, some of that pay gap can be explained in terms of just a, a lack of women in senior roles. So if you look at sort of organisational level, there's just not as many women in highly paid jobs. But what's also really important is actually equal pay, not just the, the pay gap. And we know that even for men and women doing Doing exactly the same job that women get paid less than men. So th- this is a, a, a way of valuing women's contributions less by actually just paying them less for what they do, even when they do exactly the same work. I mean, the other thing is saying that, oh, well, men and women do different jobs and that's why they get paid differently. That still raises the question about why we pay women's work, whatever that means, less than we, what we pay men's work. Um, another thing that we see, sorry. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say that, that something that um, we've um, seen played out in some of the radio stations uh, here in, in Australia where it's been identified that in the exact same role, you know, co-hosts making different amounts based on gender and that, how that's sort of been regarded. And I actually saw a, a meme recently about, I think it was a movie about the Queen and the role of the Queen the actress was played significantly less than her male co-star. There's endless examples like this. There are. There are absolutely endless examples of these. And, and, you know, people will always make arguments about why that is the case. You can always come up with something to justify it. So people will say either that, uh, you know, the male, the man uh, has better uh, uh, exposure, has been there longer, you know, has more experience or, you know, has a greater following, for example, and, you know, so therefore they should get paid more. They often make the argument that Mm. men negotiate harder 
and that if women asked, then maybe they would get it. But actually there's research that shows that even when women do ask, they don't get the same amount, that they get that denied. And actually there's backlash for when women do ask because they're seen as being pushy and overly ambitious. So that's partly why women may be reluctant to ask. But I think there's also a lot of very hard work done to justify these differences. So, for example, we had in the UK, uh, we had uh, all of our organisations above a certain number of employees had to report their gender pay gap. So we had, for example, one of our large supermarkets that showed a quite substantial pay gap. And they said, oh, but, you know, people get paid the same amount if they work the same jobs. It's just men work in different jobs. And when you looked at it, it was men that worked in the warehouse got paid more than women that worked on the shop floor serving customers. But, of course, there's no reason why that should be the case. Why should lifting boxes be paid more than talking to customers. Now, that's because one is stereotypically men's work. Of course, that's more valued is partly their argument. And they say, well, women can come and lift boxes if they want, but it's hardly justified that it's a more difficult job to do. Um, what's sort of interesting, I mean, if you if you took that saying, well, there's more heavy lifting there, you know, that's that's why it's paid more. If you suddenly start looking at doctors and nurses, for example, I mean, actually nurses do more of the heavy lifting and the dirty work than doctors. But, of course, people would say, well, doctors deserve to be paid more because you need to do more, uh, you know, there's more training, there's more expertise in there. And then you say, okay, okay, I get that then. So why is it that primary school teachers get paid less than bin collectors? Now, people would say, oh, and, and you could argue, well, but primary school teachers have, you know, they've, they've had to study more, there's more expertise there. But people say, ah, oh, but bin collectors, <laughs> that's dirty work. Dirty right. work should get paid more. So what's interesting is that there's a different rationale for every single comparison that you make, but it's always a rationale that benefits men. So I find this fascinating. I, I mean, you could go through a million of these different examples People always have an explanation for it, but really fundamentally what the explanation is, is men's work is more valued than women's work. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I've been looking at just the values in our society and how what we say we value, but what we actually value and just how, how different that is. And in some ways, it, it kind of feels a bit like gaslighting in, in a sense. But, and, and I guess the, the other um, thing I'm curious about your perspective on is the impact that this sort of social power structure and the exclusions and the justification for the inequality has on women's identities and, and again, the role they in society. What are, your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it is really interesting about how all of these things factor into, I guess, how men and women see themselves, how they define themselves. And I guess one of the things that I, I find is that for women, I mean, everyone has to balance aspects of their life, don't they? So there's all these different things that we do in terms of an example for me, I balance my work uh, with being a parent uh, with you know my hobbies and you know I quite like to travel and 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 cook and things like that about you know maintaining my relationship about maintaining my health all of these things these are all aspects out of our lives that we have to balance and what I find really interesting is that all of those different things are aspects of my identity about who I am it's all of the different things that I do the different groups I belong to how I spend my time this this makes up who I am 
finding a balance between all of those things. It almost seems like for women, that's a more difficult task to do than it is for men. So even if you just take two of those aspects of my identity, so my career and being a mother, for example, and then you take a a similar, I don't know, any professor of social and organisational psychology that you wish, a male professor, and you look at, say, his career and perhaps him being a father, I guess what's really interesting is that because what we expect from mothers is quite different, I guess, stereotypically from what we expect from fathers. I mean, uh, historically, women uh, and mothers are supposed to be caring and nurturing and I guess what they contribute to the family and uh, to the home is in terms of that nurturing that they can bring. And stereotypically and historically, men, what they contribute to the home is often in terms of supporting the home. So bringing home the bacon, uh, bringing home the money, and perhaps providing some discipline and support in those sorts of areas. The stereotypes of what's required from a mother and a father are quite different, but also how they fit and balance with what you're expected to do in your career is quite different as well. So for me, the more time I spend I guess, promoting my career and being ambitious in my career actually makes me a less good mother, hmm. stereotypically. You know, I spend less time with my family. I have less time for nurturing. And, you know, and because I'm spending time on myself, I'm, I'm being selfish potentially. But for fathers, if what they're supposed to do is support the family and provide for the family, the more successful their career is, the more ambitious they are in their career, the better a father they are. Now, because they don't have that nurturing role, it's quite a different dynamic. So I guess what's interesting to me is finding a balance between those different aspects of my identity that might be in conflict is much more difficult for me than it might be for someone who takes a traditional sort of fatherhood role. Um, So I guess for me, it's those aspects of identity and balancing those aspects of identity that are quite different for men and for women. Mm, I think in terms of um, fathers and the role they play in society, I've seen probably more change around that in the recent years than, than perhaps, you know, other aspects of what we might say moving towards equality. So I'm, I'm interested, what do you think it's going to take to, to change, you know, to, to achieve equality? If, what, what do you see? Yeah, I think there's a lot that does need to change. And I think you're right. I think there are changes there are some changes in terms of what it means to be a man. There are conversations about what masculinity entails, what is good fatherhood and and those sorts of things. And I think it's important that those discussions are being had. But actually the research suggests that it's, it's not all quite so simple and that it is still quite nuanced. So, for example, if we look at stereotypes, say gender stereotypes and how they've changed over time, if I ask people, especially young people these days, I say, well, what are gender stereotypes like now with your generation compared to, say, my generation that's, say, Generation X or my parents' generation, the baby boomers? And they'll always say, millennials will always say, oh, we don't stereotype in the same way that you used to. If you asked me when I was in my 20s whether we were different from baby boomers, I would have said, oh, no, completely different. If you ask baby boomers if they were different from their parents, they would think that they were completely different. But what's really interesting is that the data shows that, if anything, gender stereotypes are getting stronger. Millennials actually stereotype more on the basis of gender. 
than say I did or our generation did or baby boomers did. So actually we think that things are changing, but the evidence doesn't necessarily bear that out. There's also other things look at fatherhood and and I think while there are these conversations happening about masculinity and about fatherhood there's some really great research so Elizabeth Haynes in the US is doing has done these great studies where she shows a video of a man pushing a pram through a park okay and and most people would say oh you know that's much more acceptable than it used to be and and you know people really like this this idea of men spending more time with their children but what's really interesting is that she either says this man is pushing his baby through the park on a saturday morning or on a wednesday morning during i guess stereotypical work times. When it's on a Saturday, they view him as being fantastic. He's a great father. He's a good person. He's all of these sorts of things. When he's doing it on a Wednesday morning, when, and I'm putting in inverted commas here, most men should be at work, (laughs) he's actually evaluated relatively negatively. So it is this idea that we want men to take on parenting roles but we don't want them to do that in a way that's kind of feckless and why aren't they out there earning a living? Whereas if you have a woman doing it on a Saturday versus a Wednesday, it makes no difference at all. Interesting. So I want to ask what equality means to you and what you imagine when we are perhaps further along than we are now in terms of achieving equality. What does that look like? I mean, I think it's, it's actually really difficult for me to imagine that. Uh, I mean, I, I know that sounds, sounds ridiculous, but, I mean, if we asked feminists from the 60s, you know, that sort of second wave of feminism in the 60s, what they would expect things to be like now, I think they would have expected it to be very different from what it is now. I mean, there's definitely been changes, but I think those changes are not nearly as much as, as one would have hoped. And I think if I look at the rate of change at the moment, it's really quite glacially slow. I mean, I, I, there's, there's all of these different uh, sort of studies that project that, you know, it'll be 80 years before we get sort of pay equality. It'll be 100 years before we get change sort of in political representation. So there's a lot of those figures that show that actually change is very, very slow. So it's hard to imagine this sort of utopia <laughs> where everything is 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 much more equal. But what would it look like? I mean, I guess it would look like, I, I mean, I think we have to really think about what we want it to look like as well, that it isn't just about imagining more women in leadership positions, that it is also about imagining more men in caring roles and in parenting positions. I think it is about looking at about equal pay for equal work, but I think it is also about valuing different types of work in a more equal way. I think it is a lot about allowing people to be authentic and be their authentic selves, whatever that means. I mean, I think there's a lot of different views about what gender equality initiatives should look like. So, I mean, there's one group of people that say it should just be gender blind. People's gender shouldn't matter, (laughs) okay? So we should just disregard gender and just pick the best person for the job. If only it were that simple. Yeah, and, and some people say, well, that's what gender looks like, gender equality looks like. But actually, I mean, until we start treating men and women fundamentally exactly the same on all dimensions across society, being gender blind isn't particularly useful. I mean, if, if one gender gets 
you know, is expected to take on more of the parenting roles and uh, maternity policies reflect that compared to paternity policies, then having gender blind doesn't isn't useful if you can't take into account periods of maternity leave, for example. But uh, on the other hand, being gender aware is, is another sort of approach to gender equality where people might say things like, you know, women bring different things to the table so we should have more women in organizations because they make better leadership choices or better decisions or they're not quite so risky and I worry about those approaches as well because they're really sort of reinforced stereotypes that men and women are fundamentally different so so it's not clear to me that there's any one way of achieving equality or what that equality looks like um, and it's, I certainly don't get the sense that I'll be seeing it in my lifetime, which is, is I know, quite a negative thing to say, but I, I think it's a relatively realistic one. It's not that I don't want us to achieve it, but I, I don't know, maybe my nine-year-old son will be in a better position to be seeing some of these things. But I think at the rate in which we perpetuate these stereotypes and we reinforce the sorts of decisions that we're making, you know, I'm not, I'm not really sure I can say what I think it'll look like. Yeah, well, I appreciate you, you know, having a bit of a, a play with the the possibilities because, yeah, it's hard to imagine. And especially, you know, I remember growing up and thinking, yeah, of course, we're going to achieve equality in my lifetime. And now, yeah, I agree with you. I, I'm doubtful that it will happen in my lifetime. I mean, be, I would love to be wrong about that. But I think a lot of what it comes down to is, is like I was saying before, it's about what we value. And I wonder if we had more women in leadership roles that we're, we're making different kinds of decisions based on a different set of values, if that would have a perhaps an overall a more of a shift towards different kinds of values that are not just about knowing, but about actually learning and not just about reproducing, but actually nurturing and not just children, but society. So yeah, I mean, it's it is hard to imagine, but uh, so, so yeah. My next question is around the word feminism because you 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 know talked about you know the second wave feminism and how the world looked or what the possibilities of how the world could look if we achieved equality back then. But it seems like well, the the word feminism has really been demonized and rejected by women. So, wh what are your thoughts about that? About the word feminism? Yeah, it often depends on how you define feminism and what you look uh, looks like. I mean, I think one of the important things to note is that there is no one type of feminism. There's lots of different brands of feminism and different approaches. You know, it's not just one <laughs> club of which we're all a member. I mean, I definitely say I define myself as a feminist. I mean, if, especially if you, you define it in a very broad way about someone that seeks to find gender equality. And, and I think I'm stressing there gender equality, not just equality between men and women or increasing women's representation because I think gender is actually more complex than that. I think I'm uh, much more open to broader views of gender, looking at non-binary sort of views of gender and those sorts of things as well. So, so I, I deliberately talk about equality between all of the genders rather than seeing feminism about um, increasing, say, women's representation and those sorts of I actually think that if you look at uh, trans individuals and non-binary individuals, actually they face often all of the issues that women face plus more. So I think as a feminist, I think it's important to be inclusive 
of all genders and and to be broad in our definition of what equality looks like um so so i think that that's one of the important things i think there's a you know you can go down a rabbit hole of a, a lot of political and philosophical arguments about what feminism is but that's what feminism is for me and i think it's important um i think the other thing that i think is really interesting is a sort of recent, more recent phenomenon of, of male champions for change. So I'm, I'm mm-hmm. thinking of Justin Trudeau, for example, talking about his feminism and 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 champion, championing change in that way. And I think that also is an important move of having having feminism be about all of those that that seek gender equality and not just about a women's movement. Although I do think it is important for women to get together collectively, I think that women can achieve a lot in terms of sort of collective action. So if we think of things like uh, Me Too or the women's marches uh, around the world, you know, mainly in the US but also around the world, I think that sort of collective action and women's voices is incredibly important. But I, I, I would see feminism as broadening beyond just collective women's action. I really appreciate you, you know, looking at the breadth of it. And sometimes, yeah, I wonder, is, is the word feminism exclusive? And perhaps it's, like you say, it's more about equality and just, yeah, really looking at gender in a very different way. And I remember um, at the end of your talk at the Future of Work in the discussion, you said something about how you were perceived as feminist differently in Australia and the UK and that here you were like, like normal or something and there you were like completely off the charts can you say a little bit about what you meant by that yeah I mean I I think it is interesting and I think you know as an Australian living in the UK I mean I think before I moved here I just assumed that Australia and the UK were very culturally similar to each other and I think in on many dimensions they are but I do think there are some gender differences um between the two over here I, I I think British people have a very um clear view about what Australians are like and I think there's a very strong view that Australian men in particular are very macho, you know, that that they view Australia as a much more sexist society than the UK. I think having lived in both of them for a a period of time, I think they're they're sexist in different kinds of ways. Okay. Um, So so I think there is a bit of machismo and macho-ness in Australia. I think that's definitely part of the Australian psyche. But what I find different over here is that I find that that maybe as a whole and just stereotyping really broadly uh, that women tend to be perhaps um, more stereotypically feminine here in the UK than perhaps in Australia. So, I mean, when I'm in Australia, I think of myself as, you know, reasonably confident, you know, maybe a little bit above average in terms of, say, outspokenness or confidence or ambition, for example. Mm. But but as you were saying here, I feel like I'm off the charts. I'm, I'm actually quite pushy. I'm quite, you know, um, maybe not quite aggressive, but d- definitely very ambitious. Um, I think, you know, even little things like hair. I mean, I think most women here under 50 really have sort of long hair for example whereas you know Australian women are much more likely maybe it's a climate thing or whatever but (laughs) are much more likely to have shorter hair much more likely to sort of wear trousers or jeans you know I think women here tend to be a bit more feminine Mm. um 
So, so I guess what's really interesting to me is gender looks a little bit different um, between the two. I, I don't see as many women identifying as feminists here. I think that is more of a dirty word in the UK than it is in Australia. Um, yeah, so, so I think there are, are those differences. I mean, part of it might just be about self-labelling as well, you know, you know the... the the popularity of the word rather than, you know, I think many, many, many British women are actually very supportive of gender equality. Fascinating. Two final questions. What does leadership mean to you now that's different than earlier in your life? Yeah, I I think that's an interesting one. I, I mean, I've taken on a number of leadership roles and different types of leadership roles within my career. So some of them have been much more structured sort of traditional leadership roles. So I've, I've been a dean at the university. I've been an associate dean as well, as well as the professorial position. So those are quite sort of structured, hierarchical sort of roles. And I enjoy those. I've certainly, um, the hope that I've sort of risen to that challenge. Partly that's because, you know, when you spend your life talking about the dearth of women in leadership, when someone asks you to take on a leadership position, you kind of have to do it, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. put your money where your mouth is. Um, but if I think about the types of leadership I particularly enjoy, I would think it's the sort of leadership that I do much more on a day-to-day basis in terms of sort of mentoring uh, say junior researchers uh, within my sort of research group and those sorts of things. I think it's that sort of being a role model, mentoring, advocating for people that I find particularly enjoyable. And it's often that more informal day-to-day stuff that I think often makes a really big difference. Yeah. Absolutely. So if someone had an initiative that they wanted to undertake, perhaps a book or a business, a research project or a change project of some kind, but they were struggling with both those internal and external barriers, what advice would you have? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's a, that's a hard one because I don't think there's necessarily, um, you know, a magic piece of advice that, uh, you know, can fix everything. But I guess one of the things that I would say is rather than saying lean in, you know, just lean in, (laughs) inspiring you can do it, I I mean, I think partly it's about acknowledging that some of those struggles and some of the barriers and some of the imposter syndrome and some of the lack of confidence is really understandable. So instead of just saying get over it, you know, just be more confident, I would probably say, look, I understand that you might be struggling, there might be a lack of confidence, but maybe let's understand why. So partly it's about saying, look, a lot of us feel that way. I mean, I feel like an imposter on a day-to-day basis, you know. It Mm. it doesn't necessarily go away that this is shared, but also that it's understandable, you know. It's understandable that that you don't have that. And, And I think understanding that shared experience and actually taking what a lot of people think are the internal barriers there and saying it's not just about you. You know, the reason you feel like that is a reaction to what's out there. Um, Actually, sometimes that can be just as empowering because people are saying, okay, it's not that I'm innately unable to do this. It's that I'm struggling against something that's really there. Um, You know, a lot of the metaphor about the glass ceiling and the glass cliff is the glass bit, right? And the whole point of the glass is that it's transparent, it's subtle, and sometimes just pointing out that it's there 
makes you think, okay, now I understand why I've had that struggle. And sometimes that's enough just to get the motivation to continue to struggle, to persist, I guess. And, you know, I think about that great sort of slogan and that hashtag of she persisted. Mm. And I think that, that for me is much more empowering than just saying, come on, go, is, is understanding <laughs> what, what we're up against and mm. recognising what we're up against. Mm, great. Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time for being with us today. Is there any final thoughts that you have that you want to leave our listeners with? Oh, I'm not sure. I, I think the sheep assisted is probably. <laughs> I'm not sure I can top that. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's it's a really good one. It's a it's a great note to end on. Thanks very much for inviting me. Let's take a few minutes to reflect on what felt like a very rich and meaningful conversation. To start with, I find Michelle's definition of feminism really refreshing. I like that it's inclusive about gender beyond the binary view. That's important to me and my trans friends. It was quite disturbing to hear that research shows millennials are a bit blind to the stereotyping that contributes to inequality, that they don't think that they're subject to it, but perhaps engage in it a bit more than they realized, and maybe even more than previous generations without knowing it. And speaking of perceptions around gender, I find it fascinating that she sees women as more stereotypically feminine in the UK than in Australia. As someone who grew up in North America and now living in Australia, I think my experience of Australian women to be more stereotypically feminine than Canadian women. But it's all relative, isn't it? If you're in the UK or you've spent time there, let me know what you think. I really like that she talks about the day-to-day leadership, mentoring others, etc., as well as the structural roles. As you know, if you're a regular listener, we focus on the daily practices as a big part of who we are and how we lead in the world. So let's talk about the glass part of the glass ceiling. It's called that because it's invisible. And I like her emphasis on naming the experience, that we're not alone. Yes, I feel it too, and acknowledge that it's not just you. So with that in mind, she says that imposter syndrome is understandable. That's gold. It's a shared experience. So let's get curious about why, which is what Michelle's research is all about. When I asked her what it'll be like when we achieve equality, She struggles to imagine it, and the slowdown of progress in recent times has a role to play here, but I like that she said that it isn't just about more women in leadership roles, that it's also about men in nurturing roles and valuing work in a more equal way. And valuing being authentic. Yes, please, bring it on. I also like that she points out how the ideal of being gender-blind isn't useful in our current context, and being gender-aware is more important in working toward equality. Being gender aware. I like that. Whether or not we see gender equality in our lifetime, there's work to do. And I'm deeply grateful to Michelle's work to explore what's behind the assumptions that we make about women and power. I believe that making a difference in the outer world starts with making a difference in our inner world. Both the internal and external are important to pay attention to. And to focus on one and ignore or underestimate the other can lead to a lot of suffering. To have a solid foundation internally helps us be more effective in making a difference toward any change we're intent to make, whether it's gender equality, environmental sustainability, social justice, spiritual fulfillment. It's all connected and starts with us as the instrument of change. This is what I'm all about. And we'll be running a workshop in Melbourne in early March to talk more about this. So stay tuned for more info or email me directly. Poppy at tathrastreet.com Though I'm travelling at the moment, so have some patience. 
To find out more about Professor Michelle Ryan and all the resources we spoke about, there are links in the show notes as usual. If you have found value in this podcast, please leave a review, like, share, comment, it all makes a difference. Mahalo. That's thank you in Hawaiian. Thanks for listening to Tall Poppy, where we dive into leading differently in business, work, and life. Catch you on the flip side.